Hey, once again, you're listening to another episode of Baccio Death Trip with myself, Benji, alongside the uh, always incomparable, incompatible, other words you might want to use there. Reese, how you doing today, Reese? Yeah, really good, mate. Really, it's been a it's been a good week. How you been? You've had a birthday, you know. I You're did. Older, wiser. Uh, I don't know about the wiser. You said wiser or wider. Wiser. Oh, okay. Nah, I still don't know about that, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm uh now, so I need to take better care of my body, so I can't eat sixteen inch pizzas or Mister Chips pizzas anymore either, man. You know, we all have our day when we can no longer eat Mr. Chips, and that's, that's terrible. It's weird, because I was talking to Austin from or Scowling Wolf, however you would like to refer to him as, and uh, it was just a reminder about the pear show that you did, uh, which is a conversation we should have at some point as well, when you played literally in a railway tunnel, like with the trains going over the top and everything yeah. like that. And I think... The biggest takeaway I remember wasn't the gig itself, which was cool because it was just passing around a hat and you guys probably made money than you did a Wellington show, perhaps. But it was more the case of we ended up going to a takeaway and me and you were just having a full-on conversation about the sausage and chips combinations. That was the big takeaway. Not the gig or anything like that. Just, Just kind of North New Zealand takeaway etiquette, man. And then we saw that guy take his Vespa to the skate park, which oh. was incredible. Yeah, I forgot about that. That guy was a real hoon. And if you don't know what a hoon is, Urban Dictionary it. Uh, we've got some admin at the top before we go into today's show, which is discussing demanufacture by Fair Factory. So I believe someone's even sent in a voice message courtesy of our 0800 line. Absolutely. This is um, Tom M. And he was talking about toxicity. He's just listened to our toxicity album. And yeah, we'll hear what he had to say. But I did post on Reddit. I said, hey, look, as, as to, promote, to, pro- to promote the episode, I was like, look, I kind of find this album mediocre. My co-host thinks it is Sgt. Pepper's, you know, 2001 edition. Yep. And people thought you were insane, but more people just tried to fight me. I am not responding. One guy just wrote, "I'll fight you." So none of us, none of us came out looking like roses on that situation. Welcome to Reddit. <laughs> it was a bit clickbaity, to be honest, but yeah. So Tom's had a good listen, and let's hear what he has to say about toxicity because he was a massive toxicity fan. Uh, just listen to your toxicity um, podcast. I think you're probably right. I, I, I... I feel like I'm inclined to agree with you. What I've come to kind of realize with um, System of a Down in the in the you know subsequent years and and, and after doing a you know a degree in political science is kind of realizing that a lot of the political stuff Serge goes on about is real kind of politics 101. You know, it's the sort of shit that when you're like 15, 16, 17, and you're kind of getting an idea of concepts of justice and whatnot or you, you read a michael moore book or you see one of his movies and suddenly you're like oh uh, you know and you think you've got this really depth of understanding of things and i think system of down fitted that so well very accurate but very superficial takes on things and to be fair how can you really have you know a solid well thought out take in a fucking any kind of song i i I'm not against being musically political at all, but I think like the people who do it well do it really well because they're very clever people who have incredible knowledge, you know, and right, right, anyway. 
but yeah I, I feel like a lot of that's where it kind of falls over for me and then there's that flip side as you quite rightly point out on the, the podcast of going from this really political stuff to bounce pogo 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 you know it kind of uh, there's a bit of give and take there i would say still like you know 15 year old tom says this is the best album of that era by far um 35 year old tom says it's the one i remember most fondly but it's definitely not the best of that era yeah so that's tom thanks for sending it in anytime you want to send a voice message just send it through email i'll give you my whatsapp i don't care but what do you think about what tom had to say benji Oh, you know, he made a big deal about being a fucking uh, political studies graduate, didn't he? So he got that one straight off the bat. Um, All I'd say is, Tom, did 15-year-old Tom then develop an interest in politics through the fact that he discovered bits and pieces from System of a Down? Or was 15-year-old Tom into politics at that time as well? Because, yeah, it is politics 101. There's no doubt about that. But if it's a cursory introduction to younger people that might not know what is going on yeah you have to have a 101 before you advance to kind of like talking about uh the contras in nicaragua going into great detail about why the war on drugs is a problem not just saying it's a problem why is it a problem yeah it has to be a starting point so i completely get where he's coming from by all means but it also feels kind of how how do i say this arrogance probably not the best word whatsoever a stupid big fuckhead is that what you're calling him (laughs) no 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 no. i'm not calling him a super big fuckhead i'm just saying that you know he raises some interesting points that it is paint by numbers politics but as far as I'm concerned, you have to start somewhere. And if that album introduced people into problems within, uh, you know, the, the political system. I mean, we talk about Toxicity being the be-all, end-all political album that System of a Down put out. They did an album before that that was still very much heavily influenced by certain kind of politics. And Spiders. And spiders as well, definitely. And, God, those lovely, lovely kind of Persian carpets that they used to have on stage, you know, for some reason. Acoustics, maybe. I'm not too sure. But, yeah, I'd be a hypocrite because I didn't like... I Sorry, I liked American Idiot by Green Day, but I'm not going to say that uh, American Idiot by Green Day is predominantly going to give you all the intrinsic ins and outs about America's failed kind of war on terrorism. It's a starting point. So, you know, I, I agree with Tom to a degree. If you're going into a political conversation and your argument is, I think that the war on drugs is wrong and the incarceration protocol within the United States is wrong, Oh, why is that, Benji? Because System of a Down told me so. Much in the same way that I don't like the fucking... I don't like Bush because Fat Mike told me not to like Bush. That's wrong. That's ridiculous. But if it's there to open up a genuine interest... Like I said, did 15-year-old Tom then become interested in politics because he listened to what was going on and thought, ah, maybe I need to do some investigation here. So, but the big takeaway is that he graduated political studies... That was so well put, and fucking back in your box, Tom. No, that was that was a really well, that was a valid point. 
That's medicated Benji, mate. Medicated Benji. Oh, man. Fucking they're working right. a treat. Be- yeah, give me some what you got because that was very eloquent. But I still think it's a bit of a wasted opportunity in that they, they dilute that message with bounce, pogo, 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 cocaine groupie, cocaine yeah. psycho, crazy, fucking get you high. You know, it's like, oh, you, you had something really great and it could have been a very good album from go to woe, but no. Nah. Like the manufacturer, it's a concept album that really stands the test of time. We'll get into that. We've got some more admin, though, because Connor, also on System of a Down, he said, I'm stoked Benji was impressed with my voice rather than being pissed about my scathing take on toxicity. I really didn't mean to shit on his favorite record. I legit feel bad. Ah, man, Connor, it's cool. It's not my favorite record. I really like it. I mean, my favorite record of all time still and forever will be the first Foo Fighters album. Never mind. Or, or never, uh, yeah, never mind. That's the one. That's the one. Or no, in all honesty, Reeks, never mind because that effectively got me into everything that led on from metal to indie, even hip hop and stuff like that. Um, so I think Connor, your voice masked the seething rage or the the very very cutting jibes about toxicity i think i got lost in your voice more than the message that you were trying to convey but we're cool connor man and yeah more of your voice please that is rich and smooth i disagree i think you're a stupid big fuckhead connor so now on to the next message from mark and this is something close to your heart benji soul flight big day out was the first time i felt true panic for my life yeah i was 17 and skinny and we went to about five meters from the front prior to them starting then slowly the area filled with old, fat, Sepultura fans, and I got an ominous feeling. I think that's called your first direction. Then they started and shit went down. Biggest mosh I'd been in, and I had no idea how to handle it. I think I just went limp and floated along. Well, that's all you can do when you're amongst a bunch of big Sepultura fans and you've got an erection. You just you got to go limp and float along with it. No, my experience the first time I saw Soulfly was exactly the same. Was it Mark? Is it, uh, yeah, an elite yeah, runner, Mark. Elite runner, Mark. Do I have to call him by his full title or is Mark? Mark's okay, yeah. I'll call him elite runner, Mark. You know, we're not personal yet. Um, the first time I saw Soulfly was with Glassjaw, believe it or not. Great lineup. And I was, you know, you bounce along because in the UK, there's two types of dancing when it comes to metal or punk shows. You either pogo the jumping up and down that you probably see at Glastonbury and all the big festivals, or you mosh. And we're all familiar with what moshing is. So I was happy as Larry just pogoing up and down, you know, and then they started playing some Sepultura stuff. And much like Elite Runner Mark said, all the Sepultura fans came in. I'm not sure if you're a big wrestling fan or if you've watched any wrestling since our podcast about rock and wrestling, uh, Reese, but... I got suplexed, German suplexed. When you get a chance, look it up. I got lifted. I'm not a I'm not a tiny guy whatsoever. In fact, I'm probably one of those fat old school Sepultura motherfuckers that this guy got a boner over. I was probably one of those guys. <laughs> but um, I got lifted over some guy's head, dumped right on the back of my shoulder blades. You know, it could have been my head. But I was so young and I was so excited because they ended up playing 
Uh, it was Roots Bloody Roots that went straight into a nail bomb track called Wasting Away. I just got up, dusted myself off, and was like, hey, just jumping around and everything like that. It was it was pretty brutal. So we have something in common there. Not elite running, but getting the shit knocked out of us during a soul fly pit. It's fucking scary. Like I, I'm a, and I was even more so, a small, scrawny kid. And being in the Slipknot pit when I was like 14, people just picked me up. Like I didn't really want to go crowd surfing, but I got to go crowd surfing during Wait and Bleed because one dude was just like, see ya, and just yeeted me into the air. People called me. <laughs> I didn't even like, they, I land on their heads. They weren't ready for me. They barely even flinched. They were like, ah, oh, fuck off. People were just flicking me around the place. It was like a beach ball. They were just knocking me around. <laughs> One of my favourite moments regarding old school Soulfly and Sepultura fans was at a download festival and we all kind of like went up close to the front of the main stage and we thought, yeah, Soulfly are about to start. But either, you know, like a hundred people can't be wrong or they could be, they definitely could be. But in our our heads, it was (laughs) like Soulfly are about to play. But I think they got swapped over. So instead a Scandinavian kind of glam metal band called Turbo Negro came on oh, the play amazing. instead. And everybody hated it. Everybody. So they just got... Ab- they couldn't even finish their set. They got bottled off the stage. And then Soulfly came out. So tribalism. Your tribe, my tribe. Back to the primitive. Everybody hated it except Bam Margera. That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah, pretty much. Are you confusing Turbo Negro with him? No, uh, he's a, obviously was a massive him fan, he but I remember on Viva La Bam, that. Turbo Negro played. Oh, yeah. Also, he's so into, did Slayer. He's into all of that Scandinavian stuff, though, isn't he? Fuck him, were terrible. Yeah, there are, uh, of, at the same time, him was playing on one of the smaller stages, and Vilvalo did his whole kind of shtick where someone in the front row maybe they were a plant or or maybe they were a sincere fan but how the hell do you keep a rose intact at a metal fucking camping festival i've no idea and it's not like there was someone walking around with a basket like would you like to buy a rose for the lady we're at a metal festival you know but he comes off the stage and he gingerly kind of puts his hand out and he takes the rose and he touches her hand softly and puts his hand to his lips like Oh, you know, I'm so coy and shy. And it's like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, my lady. My lady, fuck off, my lady. Let's get into some good music. Let's get into some Fear Factory, where they mass produce fear. The life and times of industrial metal band Fear Factory is as storied as any well-written or poorly written soap opera. From unreleased albums to a record label putting out a remix slash B-Sides album without their consent to fill a contractual obligation. Where have we heard that one before? It's Cold Chamber. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? It's Cold Chamber and Roadrunner. Ah, just go back to the podcast. Yeah, it does tend to get a little messy looking at their history. Uh, Sometimes it does also seem like a case of He said, she said, bullshit, to quote that fantastic character of our time, Fred Durst. But throughout the tumultuous history also lays an important moment in the metal scene. Often lumbered as another new metal act due to their use of rhyming couplets, but more so their aptitude for orchestrating groove-laden tracks and an impeccable use of samples, 
There's no question that Fear Factory were not only ahead of their time, but undoubtedly were pioneers in the metal genre. From Burton C. Bell's use of death metal roars alongside emotive, melodic vocals, Raymond Herrera's drumming patterns that led to accusations of drum machine use, and Reese Fulber of Frontline Assembly seamlessly layering samples into the works, Fairfetch were ranked alongside Godflesh for their unique take on industrial music. It would be 1995's Demanufacture that would lead to a crossover appeal with the burgeoning new metal community. A concept album based around the story of a man's struggle against a technocratic government, the appeal for Demanufacture was the juxtaposition of heavy with melodic, man versus machine with Burton's organic vocals up against a blast of samples and very, 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 very fast guitar and drums, and the overall sci-fi nature of the album. At least, that was the appeal to me anyway. It was heavy, it was symphonic, it had moments of personal and political ideology within Bell's lyrics, a fact that he mentioned in recent interviews. It was different to other metal bands at the time and yet managed to fit in with that wave of new metal. So having just listened to the album recently, Reese, and being the new metal fan than say an industrial metal fan, why do you think there was such a crossover appeal? Especially given the conceptual nature of the album. Yeah, man. By that I mean it. It is. It is kind of new metal, but it is not the kind of new metal that we've been talking about on this podcast. It's. It's definitely more seeded within the kind of industrial metal kind of things. So, why is it? I mean, you from the sounds of things, you kind of enjoyed the album. Tom and I were talking. Tom M and I were talking about what is new metal, and he said it's basically because because. Really, think about Corn, System of a Down, Limp Biscuit. They sound similar, but not really. No. It's enough of a difference. Tom thinks, and I, I'm going to agree with him, one member had to have a goatee. And I, I 100% agree with him. That is basically what it was. Think about all the new metal bands. One of them had a goatee. You know, could have been that nondescript guy from Disturbed with the red stripe down his goatee. It's around that time, 2000-ish, and one of them has a goatee. So bands just like... It must have fucking driven bands mental that, hey, I, I released an incredible acoustic album in the year 2000 and I've got a goatee. New metal band goes acoustic. It's like, no. I, anyway, do you know what I feel like? I feel like this is the band that the older kids listen to. I'm yeah, a few years younger than you. 100%. Yeah, you are obviously a massive Fear Factory fan and I'm just going to be sitting around the, the campfire listening to you to tell stories and the history of it. But, but this band is fucking great. I don't know why it didn't latch on to me. I think I had Digi Digimortal, um, but even then I can't really remember much about it. But this album, do you know, the, the words I would use to describe it are dedicated, very, very focused, very considered, inspired, and probably non-compromising. Like, they really, I think then they moved studios and producers, and they were trying to find this, this perfect guitar tone. There's no fucking faffing around on this album. I don't know if there's any guitar solos. It's trimmed of all fat, but never loses focus of what its narrative or point is. It is a very, very, very solid album, almost to its detriment in that the it's so well written. Like even the first just couple of tracks alone, so many different parts to it, but they flow so seamlessly that it's really easy to drift out of it. I find that drifting, re sorry. Uh, I find that that is 
because of just how well crafted Reese Fulber uses his samples. Like Reese Fulber is essentially in uh, on that Fair Factory album. What say DJ Lethal or uh, you know other other kind of DJs that would add those bits and pieces on top. But instead of like throwing things on top, it kind of just layers it just underneath, and it's it comes to the present. It's like. It's the underbelly of the whole album that every now and again just peaks up above the kind of, uh, you know, the water level. And it's that peaking up that manages to bring everything almost seamlessly. Now, my only problem with Demanufacture is sometimes it can feel a little samey. But at the same time, I thrashed that album last year pretty much like five days a week non-stop and if i wasn't listening to the album as a whole i was listening to like those other bits and pieces um so yeah you're right it, it did feel like it was an album for the older metal kids you know like the younger kids were like into Slipknot and Corn and stuff like that, and then if you were a bit more serious into your new into your metal music, then you'd probably look at bands like Fear Factory or what was another one? Probably like White Zombie or Rob Zombie. You know the kind of you go all in kind of bands. You know because White Zombie and Rob Zombie fans would dress up like that, and Fear Factory fans would be like big black hoodies black cargo shorts, you know, they they want to get that kind of style that Burton C. Bell had. So, yeah, I, I completely get where you're coming from there. Oh, it's all right that you missed it because now you've got the opportunity to revisit it. And it's also revisiting it outside of the context of all the new metal that was going on because, again, it, it I find it confusing how they are an industrial metal band. If you listen to the earlier stuff like Soul of a New Machine, uh, which we'll definitely get into talking about the controversy regarding that a little bit later on, and you take a listen to stuff like Scapegoat, they were like a, a mixture of an industrial band and a death metal band. And I think with Demanufacture, they kind of realized that we could be brutal, but we don't necessarily have to be brutal all the time. And that's when those symphonic moments that Burton C. Bell uses comes out. Now, as far as Tom saying, I don't know if it's a joke or not. I'm hoping it's a joke. Uh, you guys talking about how is new metal just purely based on aesthetics? Maybe that's the case, because if you look at Fear Factory, you go... Yeah, they look like a new metal band. They look like an older version of Spineshank or some shit like that, you know. But listening to them, it's not a new metal album. I mean, it's a groove metal album. It's definitely an industrial album. But perhaps it is the vocal takes that Burton C. Bell undertakes throughout the album that lead into it being fit into like a, a, a new metal kind of arts type, you know. He's shouting, he's singing. He's roaring, he's singing. Uh, where have we heard this before? Oh, I know. Deftones, Corn, and other bands like that. Yeah, well, Dino talks about that. In my research, I found that he basically said, we invented that. And I thought, and I was speaking to Connor about it, we were saying, yeah, that seems like a bit of a big call. But looking back and thinking about it, who really did it before them? Who's, who screamed the verse, sung the chorus? And that went into 
your kill switch engage, that sort of thing as well. Yeah, like the whole post-hardcore movement did that. You had Will Haven, Glassjaw, you know, so I hadn't really thought of it that way, to be honest with you, until you've just mentioned it then. So, you know, perhaps it is an even bigger influential album across different genres than just the metal genre. The way I picture it is that it's like someone got a huge big black sharpie or a big texture and just drew it a straight line. Like that's what I think all the songs are. Songs are they're just I don't know how to put it in non-Australian. They're chock a block with with ideas and concepts. It's so much going on, but not heaps going on. Do you know what I mean? Like Slipknot has yeah. nine dudes head head banging, you know, and slapping their face against a keg, whereas this is just like. I, I think it's four guys, yeah, with analog synthesizers and fucking incredible uh, double to triple kicks, whatever they have, and just they seem like horses sprinting with blinkers on. They just run straight, and there's there's an end goal, and it's, hey, fuck the police, coming straight from the underground, basically, and it's a sentiment that is was incredibly um, poignant last year. And, and, and going on from there. You know what I mean? It is a very, yeah, very, yeah. very, um, how do you say it? Futuristic album, I guess. I mean, like, they they have no bones about it. They say that The Terminator was an absolutely big, big reference. You said um, Terminator like, or Shermanator? Uh, Shermanator. The Shermanator was a very big reference point on that album. Uh, because then Obsolete that came out afterwards followed into that, hey, this kind of concept the al- album worked, let's expand on it a bit more with Obsolete, and then with Obsolete came kind of like the Grammy nominations and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I get your whole kind of like someone's taken a Sharpie and just drawn a line and then gone, oh yeah, but we have to fill that, that's just a straight line, we have to fill it with something, and someone's gone, alright then, and they've just scribbled all over the line and big chunky kind of script but never gone out of the edges no 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 absolutely not you can tell it's been scribbled but you can tell it's been meticulously scribbled like i want to make sure it doesn't fall too much out of the box that we've created for ourselves which which lends into the what i was saying sometimes it can feel a bit samier but you're gonna get that if you're going from like naught to 50 balls to the wall in such a short space of time and uh, the amount of coverage that that album got. I mean, one of the tracks appeared on Mortal Kombat, the the movie. That's a big, 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 big thing to happen to a band like Fear Factory. And to this day, people are still using D-Manufacture for, you know, all other kind of licensing bits and pieces, you know. They appear in video games, Carmageddon, Test Drive 5, you know. Um, it's incredibly influential, and I would have, I would say to everyone, check it out. Definitely check it out. And then go and read about the, the whole kind of infighting that took place as well, and just all the... Honestly, you could open up a fucking drama channel on YouTube with the amount of stuff that went down between Fear Factory, amongst themselves, amongst Roadrunner Records. So, you add that into the balance that this was a band that maybe they were on the edge to begin with and they cultivated all of that aggression into like this album it's something magical 
it's not quite Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club's magical, but it's no toxicity. You can, it's no. Well, no, it's not. It's I'd say that it's better than toxicity. Yeah, you will get no arguments from me on that, man. <laughs> yeah. Just on that drama, Dino did say, I think it was Dino or Kevin Smith. I always get the two confused, but I think Dino said he would never talk to Burton C. Bell again, basically. There's no chance they'll ever do anything again. Do they just, can you dot point the drama? Like, imagine it's just like a 30 year recap of Neighbours in five <laughs> dot points. Right, so it turns out that Paul Robinson was actually working for a secret government organization that was into medical experimentation, and then he moved back to Ramsey Street in order to... Oh, no, wait. Do you know I was on two episodes of Neighbours, and I was in a scene with Paul Robinson? Of course you were, man, because it's like, it's either everyone I know that's in Australia have either had a guest appearance or in the background on Home and Away or Neighbours. Well, the best thing was, my band's poster were in on the, was on the wall. And it had my face Which on band? it, but no one knew it. The one that came to New Zealand. And so oh, yeah? my face was there and I was next to it. No one picked it up, which is pretty great. But yeah, Paul Robinson, uh, I was meant to climb a stepladder, right? Yep. And I was on the second rung and the director came and said, you can't be on the rung, the second rung, OH&S laws. You got to be on the first rung. And Paul Robinson came up to me and said, how fucked is that, man? You can go by... Any ladder you want, stand on the very top. No one's going to tell you anything. But come on the set of Neighbours and you can't get on the second rung. Then the assistant director came and said, hey, when you shake on the camera, when you shake the guy's hand as he walks in, scratch your balls beforehand and then shake his hand. And then look, I was playing a tradie. I was playing a tradesman. Then look to your tradesman friend and laugh and say, did you see me scratch my balls? And then I shook his hand and I said, all right. (laughs) And I did it uh, because I don't have a brain. But anyway... Why did but, talk about talk about being fucking miscast? You as a tradie. Oh, I was a hippie surfy tradie. So I was three oh, yeah. different characters, uh, all rolled in one, and it was a nightmare. The 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 fashion director would come in and be like, "Oh my god, what is he wearing? His knees are knobbly. He's got fucking red patches on his face. His facial hair's all wrong. That necklace is terrible. He's got no shoulders. Why'd you put him in that shirt?" And then, oh, no offense, mate, but we're just going to change your clothes. And then I'd get changed again. And then the guy would come in again and be like, no, no, no. That guy doesn't have a good chest. You've made his chin look pointier. He looks disgusting. No offense, man. We're going to change you again. I was like, I can hear what you're saying, man. I, I'm right. Yeah. I'm within three meters. This monkey's got feelings. Thanks a lot, man. But why Why do Fear Factory hate each other? It's, it's all comes down to money and trademarks as as my the the easiest way i can summarize it because they've gone through so many fucking band changes it's, it's almost like um i've had this i've had this broom uh for 12 years and i've only had to change the head on it six times and i've had to change the pole on it six times i've forgotten what the actual analogy is it's like as, as an original ship, still a ship if it's had pretty much all of its wood replaced over time, you know? And it, it, the, the same thing was with Fear Factory. Is Fear Factory still Fear Factory if they got rid of Dino Cazares, who was a big, big part of that band, you know? Or is Fear Factory still going to be Fear Factory without Burton C. Bell? Because their, their latest work that's coming out is, is one that Burton's like, I've got no involvement i'm just doing ascension of watchers stuff 
And then there was a court battle over the name Fear Factory that Christian Old Wombers and Raymond Herrera, uh, the rhythm section of the band, took Dino to court over because they felt that they, by rights, should be able to have a say in how the Fear Factory name is being used. Kind of in a similar sense that how Danzig got into... Uh, a a legal or got into litigation sorry regarding how the misfits name should be used with with other members of the band so there's always been a clash of 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 finances what the name uh how the name should be used who by rights has the actual intellectual ownership of of the name and the whole concept of fear factory and then there's other things like how burton c bell i mean Burton did an interview you can find on YouTube where he doesn't think that he's a death metal singer. You know, he's just saying that he emotes that how he feels that part of his lyrics should be at that time. So if you bear that in mind, he didn't want Fear Factory with Digimortal to go down the whole kind of we have to have rapping verses now on our music because that's what Roadrunner wanted because that was what was uh, on trend at the time Digimortal came out. So then there's the creative kind of differences, because, you know, there's the adage, if it isn't broken, don't fix it, but you still want to evolve those kind of things, you know? And then came the whole Roadrunner Records releasing Concrete, which makes Ross Robertson look like a shady fucking individual when you read a bit more about that. Because Fear Factory... Digimortal did well, but didn't do as well as Roadrunner wanted it to do. You know, they thought it could have been better, you know, like and I I I'm not a fan of Digimortal whatsoever. It's like, why are you making Burton Seabell rap? Why are we oh, does he rap? Real- does he go full machine head? Oh, you know, it's like <laughs> you know, full kind of like the burning red star machine head as well. Or, or, or trying to at least um so they just didn't want to be a part of roadrunner anymore but they still had that that classic thing that we're going to probably run into in future podcasts as well of <sighs> roadrunner being a bit shady which is sad because i grew up as a big roadrunner fan but the red flags were there when they did fuck all with Glassjaw for a start but with Fear Factory, much like Coal Chamber, there was a contractual obligation. Like, you guys still have to release an album through us. There's still that contract there. Um, in 1991, they worked with Ross Robinson, uh, and he wanted to form his own record label. And the band didn't like how the recording sessions went, so they went and re-recorded Soul of the New Machine. So... They owned the rights to the songs, but they didn't own the rights to the recordings. Those recordings somehow ended up on Roadrunner Records releasing Concrete when the band had a contractual obligation, like we're not releasing anything. As it stands, rumour has it that Ross Robinson wanted to make a quick buck and had an existing relationship with Roadrunner. Uh, And so my lawyers tell me to say allegedly sold those original recordings to Roadrunner so Roadrunner could fulfill the contractual obligation 
of releasing a final Fear Factory album. And that and Burton C. Bell fucking hated it. Burton C. Bell has gone on record to absolutely slate Roadrunner Records. I mean, the more and more you look at older bands that were with that label, the more and more you kind of realize, oh, everything wasn't idyllic. That that's interesting. So yeah, to answer your question, creative finances, all the kind of shit that bands get go get into that ultimately leads to you know their demise. But holy shit, it just felt, it's like Daniel Johns and his health. It just seems like every other week, Daniel. Oh hey guys, yeah, I've got another health problem. Like you know, the first couple of times that's really sad, but then it gets to a point where it's like, are you serious? Or like how Glassjaw used to cancel gigs all the time, like. I I get it. You've got Crohn's disease, but you know this is this is kind of getting a little bit silly. And I know that as a fan, I have to appreciate what you're doing, and I I respect that. But then, as a selfish fan, what the fuck is going on? And it, it's exactly the same with Fear Factory. You know, it's weird because they got back together the original lineup and played some shows, and then next minute it's oh Burton C Bell's not involved, but he's recorded vocals for an album but they're not releasing that album so what what's going on and it's a mess you just got to keep your eye on social media burton's quite active on it dino does all the interview rounds and ah just i i don't know it's it's one of those you walk away from it i know people take sides and everything like that but for me it's like fucking hell it's just it's ugly to watch mate it's like fleetwood mac ugly yeah, and sadly, it seems to come with with uh, how do I, with brilliance. You know, the fact that they were so on fire. So what was it like? Beatles were only a band for four years, or whatever it was. You know, yeah, is, is that something along those lines? Something that burns so bright, and the creative juices are flowing so intensely. Sadly, once that kind of simmers down, and you're left with business deals and contracts and personalities and touring it's like ah oh, fuck i didn't want this like it was great when we had that focus and that's the thing with like with fear factory i don't i don't doubt their motive for this album or their inspiration or their dedication and they kind of seem like uncompromising uh, in their sound and especially in their songwriting but burton c bell correct me if i'm wrong is a very well-read man yeah oh yeah he's incredible and i mean the lyrics that he writes uh are fascinating you know the lyrics for replica if i remember correctly are basically about how everyone's kind of like pigeonholed into kind of like set kind of notions and roles and him being kind of like rebellious at the time was more i I don't want to live that way you know and it was a proclamation of all these things that you're being told to do and everything like that just walk away from it which is very much kind of like the the theme of demanufacture from a philosophical standpoint is the idea of kind of like the the technocratic government you know the kind of uh you know computers and technology that are forcing people to live a certain way and you've got this one individual that's like i can't deal with this you know it's an allegory towards the fact that you know all of these bits and pieces in terms of the political spectrum in terms of kind of the ideas of you know what is socially acceptable what what you should be doing you know how you're meant to live your life 
and going up against that kind of idea uh, against you know basically not even teenage angst stuff just things that you feel these days as well like you know like the bullshit that's happening with say you know black lives matters you know where why the fuck is this still going on and it's systematic or systemic you know what why the fuck is uh, are we still having issues with kind of you know normalizing lgbtqi rights and stuff like that it's all systemic so it's kind of that was the kind of attitude that he had which again leads into him being absolutely well read a good photographer as well oh true yeah gone full tom from myspace <laughs> i got a quote from monty connor who um i hope i'm pronouncing that right worked for roadrunner records and and it kind of summed up my my feelings on the album so it's it's it is it really is a masterpiece and fear factory don't get the credit they deserve for being innovators their sound and their concept concept is only getting more relevant as time goes by it was released in 1995 yes. and i was in primary school and like i just missed it because i got into metal uh in early high school and i sh- i saw some older people wearing uh fear factory shirts like one dude i remember he would always wear Fear Factory shirts. I saw him in the back of the bus and he, once I was at a house party and I saw him, like a girl vomited and he did eat some beetroot from the vomit to impress us. Ah, so nice. that was a typical Fear Factory fan as far as I was concerned. But <laughs> their message has stayed true, you know. System of Downs also has, especially with the Armenian genocide, genocide and I can't comment on that because that's not my story or experience. No, we, no we, fucking, we can't. I don't know any of that sort of shit. But at the time i would have heard fear factory and i'm like ah fucking shut up old man and i would have heard like system of down like these guys are talking about prison reform and fucking things i can get behind and cocaine groupies you know things i will never experience but now coming back to as as a 35 year old adult you know quotation marks the fear factory message has stayed very 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 on point from this album i don't know i can't comment on their their earlier or later works I mean, earlier works are still the same, you know, um, just a lot more heavier. And I would implore anyone to go and check out their heavy works, like um, Scapegoat. I mean, earlier, a little bit more politicized. I think maybe what you're getting at, Reese, is that when we were younger, it was kind of like the, the righteous kind of vitriol of being young and then getting into politics and like you know tom uh tom mentioned you know it's politics 101 but it got us into something but when we get older we've realized that politics is just it's the same fucking game but with different names that's that's essentially what it is you know at the end of the day there's there's no two ways about it uh, but with fear factory it came across in the later albums apart from digimortal it came out as more philosophical and i think the older you, you get you kind of move away from politics because I, I i can't speak for everyone but i get kind of jaded with politics because like i said sometimes it just feels like it's it's the exact same game it's just the characters names have all changed but you get into more kind of philosophy because you start to kind of question all right well you know politics is that but why is that that and and existentialism and all of that kind of shit so Maybe that's why it's lasted the test of time because, you know, philosophically, the older you get, 
and the more you experience life, the more that informs perhaps your philosophical kind of ideologies, you know? That's a very deep thing to say, but again, I can only attest to the fact that listening to Dear Manufacture, yeah, you know, I I don't get a politicized vibe off it. I get a very kind of like questioning, well, what is the meaning of this and what is the meaning of that? Which, which, you know, that kind of shit stands the test of time because that is the eternal question. Yeah, there'll be prison reforms and yeah, the the war on drugs is is not working out, but we know that. But we can never at the end of it put our finger down on the fact of why do we exist and why do we allow things to happen. So in that aspect, perhaps for some people, including myself, Demanufacture becomes a very introspective kind of album and perhaps that's why I love it. Plus it's fucking heavy, Reese. It's fucking heavy. Yep. The only fault I have is that one moment where Burton starts a song. <gasps> I do not like oh, that. Oh, with, with, with Replica, yeah. Yeah. But then me and my friends at university always used to have a joke like, it's Captain Burton C. Bell, you know, he sells fish fingers, or, you know, it's that, huh! you know, I, in the intro, you could hear me doing my Burton C. Bell impression, you know, like, oh, uh, uh, I'm off to the shop. What do you do? You want anything, Burton? Yeah, huh, huh, fish and chips and a bag of pineapple lumps. You know that <laughs> we would we would just do that all the time, all the time. But if that's your only fault with the album, that's pretty bloody impressive, man. I've got a game for you, and going on from the factory sort of vibe to throw this podcast off track, I've got uh. Four or five musicians. Uh, we'll see how this goes. Okay. I've got three options. With the factory th- theme, which kind of factory do you think they worked in? Did Patty Smith work in a household appliances manufacturing factory, a toy factory, or a guided missile space vehicles and parts manufacturing factory? Fucking hell. I can't even remember all, all of the options. I'm gonna Household go appliances, like- toy factory, or guided missiles? Ah, uh, fuck it. Guided missiles just for the hell of it. Man, Patty Smith worked in a toy factory, fixing boxes and testing toys, which is pretty good. That's uh, not, as, not as fun. No, nowhere still. near it. Ozzy Osbourne, not sure if you've heard of him. He's the guy who can't find his remote, and his son oh, yeah. had a cold chamber t-shirt. Did he oh, work yeah. at an assembly line for Spa Industries Global, metal forging and stamping, or worked in a car factory as a horn tuner? Well, he was in Birmingham, and Birmingham at the time, Longbridge had a was was the epicenter when it came to car manufacturing. But then they also had a whole bunch of metalwork there as well. So uh, it's I've got to be option two or three. Part of me wants to say option two because I don't believe that he would have been of age. Well, I, that I take that back. He could have been of age. It was either Rob Halford or Ozzy that worked. No, it was Tommy Iommi who lost his fingers at the metal pressing plant. So I'm going to say it was the car manufacturing place. Well done, man. He was a horn tuner at a car factory. Well done. That was great. He was a horn tuner. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you have to tune horns? Yeah, I I guess. That's that's ridiculous. I I don't know if it's like car horns or there's like... Some I I don't know you know my 
who gets the job then? You know, air horns, you know, you know, the, the, the ones you get in a can. Whose job is it to figure out, all right, so we're going to we're going to do an array of new air horns. So what we say and what we're going to do. C-sharp, there you go. Does, yeah, there you go. That's what I'm thinking. Does anyone go, well, let's change the pitch of the air horn? I actually paid for my university by tuning uh, Vuvuzelas, which was pretty good. Good lucrative job that. John Bon Jovi, did he assemble Christmas decorations? Was he a wrinkle chaser, which is like they made sure there was no creases on shoes when they were whisked out of the factory? Or did he work in a blast Ooh. furnace? He's a Jersey boy, isn't he? Yeah. A lot of trash in New Jersey. But he doesn't look like the kind of person that would work in a blast furnace. I, I, I'm going to say option two, just because it sounds whimsical. Uh, wrinkle chaser. He No, he yep. assembled Christmas decorations. Gee, okay. That's pretty uh, milk toast. Anyway. I actually didn't know if that was in a factory. I just assumed. Two more. Ashton Kutcher. Not musician, but fucking great dude. What he does for um, child trafficking. Next level. Did he clean and repair breast pumps in a factory? Did he sweep cereal dust at a General Mills factory? Or was he a glass cutter? Uh, did he? Was he a sweeper? He was a sweeper, man. Well done. There he swept go. cereal there dust on it at the General Mills factory. Someone else did repair breast pumps in a factory. I couldn't remember who it was, but I remember reading it in my research for this. And lastly, Bruce Springsteen. Did he work in a color ma- uh, Did he work like as a color matcher, paint tinter, like in a factory there, a window fabricator and production assembler in New Jersey, or did he work for five months in a yarn thread and fabric mill? I want to say he worked in a mill. That sounds nice. Did he work in a mill? Bruce Springsteen is the ultimate fraud. He has never been in a fucking factory in his life, and he admits during this this TV show that he had that he has never even set foot inside a factory. Fucking what a fraud. So there were no answers. Nah, that was a trick one to set him up as just a, a bold-faced liar. As a rogue selling his music at Starbucks. Ah, uh, I take that back. I like the boss. He said his um, his songs are characters. He is proto Fred Durst. His song, yeah, but his songs are characters. Yes, yeah. he's a, a character. character. He's playing a character in his songs. Oh well, I can get behind that. Not living a character, like you know, not like Fred Durst thinking he's Andy Kaufman or something like that. Um. I haven't been keeping up to date with our correspondence in terms of sponsorship, but I heard you picked up the slack while I was just going through some things. So I said to the internet, happened? I was like, I can't keep doing this anymore. I'm getting too stressed out. And they said, would you like one a one-week break? And I said, yes, please. It's making me fucking so frustrated. So I signed up for an online course. Yep. Just to just clear my mind, you know arch my back, and I happened to record it, some new metal yoga. It's really good for the oh, soul, right. man. okay, yeah, I'm into this. Hi, and welcome to new metal yoga. Are you ready? We're going to start by jumping the fuck up, and then slowly letting our bodies hit the floor. You should be feeling that the blood is rushing through your veins, and you've got the power now. And I want you to channel that energy, and with your strength, you will devour. Let's step onto the yoga mat. Great. Let's find a little room to breathe and take one step closer to the edge. 
Now let's get into our Durst pose. Mm, nice and slowly. Good. Let's move in. Now move out. Hands up. Now hands down. Back up. Back up. Now tell me what you're going to do now. And if you're feeling a bit of an ache, just push your fingers into your eyes and that should slowly stop it. Let's loosen those shoulders and get them attached to the loco. Power up Cole. Throbbing straight into the circle. I want you to move on reaction as I slow it down, down, down. Yeah, you push it. Yeah, you push it. Yeah, you push it. Now, with arms wide open, I want you to be like a dead man walking on a tightrope and repeat our mantra. I can see, I can see, I'm going blind. I can see, I can see, I'm going blind. I can see, I can see, I'm going blind. Fantastic job, everyone. Now, to finish off, let's just quickly grab a brush and put a little makeup. And I wish you all a beautiful tomorrow. Namaste. I must say that I'm I'm feeling quite zen, quite centered. It's, uh, it's that's bizarre because I've just started taking sertraline, and that's now put me in a very nice space. And I know that the advert is basically a joke and everything, but I'd quite like you to send me that. I'd like to fall asleep with that. I'd like it to be the big warm hug that I expect to get from you whenever we do a podcast. Wow. That's really fucking mellowed me out, man. That's really kind of mellowed me out. Wow. Let me bring you back to oh. th- the space. <laughs> One thing I did read that I loved. Bands like, fuck Fear Factory. Like, they're, it's all triggers. It's all, like, metronome. It's all program shit. And they're like, we play every fucking night. Like, so they would record and then go play at night, yeah? Yeah. And band's like, oh my god. And you can hear some timing issues in this album. There are there are brief moments where they do speed up a little bit. Or the yeah. kick drums aren't perfect. It's incredible. Because I've had bands, um, I've had friends in hardcore bands that recorded. And the drummer wasn't in, even there. It was all program drums. And it sounds incredible. You wouldn't really know. It's just that there's no fucking errors at all. There's no humanity in there whatsoever. But yeah, I love that bands were... Um, I think, actually, John Bon Jovi were in the studio at the same time as Fear Factory. And yeah, Fear Factory yeah, were playing the music back so loud that they're like, it's being picked up by a drum tracks. Well, I mean, like, it's it's not unusual for bands, for drummers to have, like, triggers, you know? So, like, they're still double-kicking quite fast, but then those are triggering kind of like the, the secondary and third... Um, double kicks that are going at the same time so my understanding is that if you it, the trigger is good if you tap it it doesn't matter how hard you hit it it will make the same sound so you could tap it lightly or you could thump it and it will still go doom, you know what i mean so if your yeah. double kicks aren't they're, they're in time but they're just lacking that sort of um velocity in the left yeah. kick it will sound perfect yeah but yeah i mean they it's People thought, oh, they use a metronome. Why? Because they want to stay in time. Fuck's sakes, you know that. It's such an insult. I took that. I took real offence to that. I'm trying to just uh, decompress from new metal yoga for a minute. Um, but like, you listen to a band like that great Australian band Berserker. That's a drum machine, soulless. 
absolutely so up. But people loved that because it was just extreme metal. The same reason that people like extreme noise terror because it's just extreme. So I think with the manufacture that it has those elements of being extreme, but thankfully you've got kind of like those symphonic. And again, Reese Fulber deserves so much credit because those samples, that layering, that kind of you know, um, cyberpunk kind of aspect to it. it. It's it's a it's a big credit for his involvement, uh, and I think it's also a big credit to Burton C. Bell, who uh, you know honed like the Pixies were the the Pixies were known for creating that dynamic of loud, quiet, loud. They had a documentary called Loud, yes, Quiet, Loud. Yeah. The drummer Burton wore a beret. He did. Uh, Burton C. Bell, I think you could say, could have credit for doing that death metal symphonic, you know, growl, harmonized growl. Because you look at the bands that came afterwards, um, and they kind of followed that. Even Down the Sun, who we've mentioned, previous, who we mentioned previously. Yeah. Down, the, Down the Sun kind of borrowed that element quite a lot. Chimera, I feel, borrowed that element quite a lot as well. Um yeah, it's just a bloody good album. Is it what your more can you say? favorite? If if I was like, hey, look, I don't, I've only got time to for one Fear Factory album. What would you suggest? Oh, Demanufacture, definitely. definitely. That's your number one, easily. E- easily my number one. Easily my number one. My number two would be Soul of the New Machine, and then Obsolete, and then everything else is just just an afterthought. So I'm not a fan of Digimortal. Oh. Do you own any Fear Factory shirts? Yeah, of course I do. It's a D-Manufacture shirt. I own a D-Manufacture shirt, and then I used to own a Soul of a New Machine shirt. I'm that serious about that band that I would actively wear. Maeve, my wife, she bought me uh, that Fear Factory shirt for Christmas because it was always that one piece of merchandise that if you went because I lived in a in a small uh, town, you know, uh, called Newark, and you'd have to travel by train to go to Nottingham, which was kind of like one of the big, bigger kind of cities, you know. And there would be kind of like that old, weird, I'm sure every place in England, maybe in Australia, have it as well. It was that weird place you'd walk past that would sell like kind of incense, you know, joss sticks, crystals yeah those yeah. weird sculptures smoke dreams of in melbourne That's yeah what it yeah yeah man and you'd walk in and there'd be like this kind of like gothic kind of clothing you know all kind yeah. of either strappy or bondage pants but they always in the corner had like just a couple of band shirts or a couple of hoodies and like they'd have like corn or spine shank um t-shirts uh and and a lot of cradle clothes. shirts as well yeah Oh man, a hell of a lot of cradle shirts, man. Uh, Dimu Bore gear shirts as well. Like, I didn't realize that Newark had a great Dimu Bore gear populace. You know, weird. But then they—you'd uh, never be able to get your hands on a Fear Factory shirt. You would never. You'd have to go to Nottingham and hope. But even then, it was—it was a premium. I don't know if that's—that was a thing, but it was kind of—you'd pay a premium for like the bigger bands. And I'm guessing that they were shirts that either were picked up from a tour or or just mass pressed. But it was always Fear Factory hoodies with the writing down the sleeves. 
and I, you know, and I think I, I got to university and I stopped wearing band t-shirts as much, you know, I still had the typical Nirvana smiley face and the sliver shirt and uh, a couple of Foo Fighters shirts. Fuck, I, had, I found a Spine Shank shirt and I just used to wear that when I went to work to do kind of like um, beer deliveries. But so wait, you were, you were big in the Spine Shank? Yeah, I quite liked Spine Shank. I swapped the shirt with someone at college once because I, I had like a double up of a, of a Deftones White Pony shirt. I still have a Deftones White Pony hoodie. Uh, from back in the day, uh, that Maeve I, I bestowed upon Maeve when we started going out. Um, oh, that's how you were pitching woo, huh? That's how you called that's it. That's how I pitched woo. Hey, baby, do you like Deftones? Have Not my really. Deftones hoodie. Well, fuck you, madam. <laughs> Good night. But yeah, I, and then I just forgot. It. I always, you know, wanted to pick up like a, a Fair Factory shirt, but I never got around to it. And then you know, I started when I was going through. Uh, you know, my, my mental health issues as it was, I, you know, and it was kind of like, I fucking don't want to listen to music anymore. Music. I, I, I really don't like music. Um, I started listening to bits and pieces and the bits and pieces I started listening to were all the kind of old school metal things like, Oh yeah, you know, these bring back good times. And then I had fucking fear factory and then Boom. You know, it, it was last year was all about Fear Factory, and the year before that was all about fucking Soundgarden, you know. So I finally ended up with a Fear Factory shirt, but it had to be a D Manufacture shirt because the design, the, the, the complete article for D Manufacture, from the music to the kind of um, philosophy, all the way through just the design, the kind of real cyberpunk, edgy, cold, metallic, techno. It's just the whole package is fucking brilliant, man. It's one of the few metal albums I'd happily buy on vinyl. And I can't afford vinyl, but man, that and Static Static X was like the big heavy metal vinyl that I, I picked up that I have proudly sat on my shelf downstairs. And what are we talking? Static X episode 25? Was that right? Yeah, we are. It's an anniversary. It's got to be. That's when we start to reveal a little bit more of kind of like the whole concept of Baccio Death Trip. That and the Glassjaw episode at some point yeah. as well. Spoiler alert. I fucking love Static X. Yes. Fucking spoiler alert. That's the whole reason me and Reese got along was it started with Glassjaw and then ended up with Reese signing uh, one of his vinyls. Uh, under the guise of Wayne Static. He told me to grab my shovel, Reese, as Wayne Static, which is crazy, man, because I here I was just thinking that Fred Durst was playing a character, but no, apparently Wayne Static was actually Reese in disguise. On on lifts, you know, to get that hype. You know, in a wig that's pointed upwards as well. Um on a Vesper in a skate park. Yeah, on a Vespa in a skate park near a big blow-up soft drink bottle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Eating, eating ice cream. Lord I'll man. see if I can find photos or video of that, and I'll post it on the socials. Speaking of which, if you got this far and you don't follow us on Instagram, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, we've got 40 followers. I'm fucking wow. making stain memes every week. What more Reese do you guys want? Giving, Reese is giving me shit for uh, comparing toxicity to sergeant peppers that's that i'm glad that's gonna go down as kind of like my undoing i'm really glad that's gonna go down as my undoing uh bench it was an absolute treat mate and i look forward to talking to you uh next week 
yeah, we don't know what it's going to be. So the only way you're going to find out is to tune in or maybe go on that Instagram or other social media platform plugs that I can be bothered to tell you about right now.